0: It's day 51 of Hamas's war against Israel, and we'll have updates and the latest on the emotional hostage releases with a live briefing from the IDF. And then we'll go to New York to hear from Congressman Richie Torres. I'm Michael Dixon, and this is Stand With Us TV Live. Shalom from here in Israel, and thank you for joining us for our weekly briefing. This is week eight, as we break down the war with Hamas and its global fallout. And we'll end tonight's broadcast by showing you the emotional scenes as families ripped apart by Hamas kidnapping are finally reunited. Stay with us. We're streaming live to stand with our social media platforms as well as YouTube, and you can listen to this and all previous briefings as a podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Over 400,000 of you watched our last briefing with clips on Stand With Us digital platforms reaching millions. Now, last night we stood with over 100,000 Israelis in Tel Aviv, in the newly renamed Hostages Square. Take a look. Tens and tens of thousands of Israelis have come all over the country to stand here together to give comfort to each other, but also to call strongly the immediate release of all of the hostages from Gaza. It's been an excruciating week for Israel, for Israelis and for anyone who loves Israel as the drama of the hostage release continues to unfold. In a moment, we'll discuss that and the latest with the IDF spokesperson. But first, a roundup of last week of Israel at war. Israel agreed to a four-day pause in fighting Hamas and the release of Palestinian prisoners in return for the release of hostages from Gaza. And these are the names and faces of Israelis and foreign nationals who have been released from Hamas captivity from Gaza to Israel. But 177 men, women and children are still being held captive in Gaza. Also this week, consistent attacks took place from Hezbollah in Lebanon towards northern Israel. And prior to the pause in fighting, the IDF conducted targeted raids in Bet Hanun and other locations in northern Gaza, uncovering huge amounts of munitions while neutralizing hundreds of terror tunnels. Weapons and tunnel shafts were found hidden under children's beds, inside a mosque and under hospitals. Meanwhile, two Palestinians accused of collaborating were murdered by Palestinians in the Palestinian Authority-controlled city of Tul A mob trampled on their bodies, which were then hung on an electricity pole and later dumped in the trash. I doubt there'll be any pro-Palestinian protests for those poor men. Let's get the latest update now. Joining us live is the IDF International Spokesperson, Lieutenant Colonel Jonathan Comricus. Thank you so much for being with us once again. It has been a frenetic and fast-moving and emotional week in Israel. So today is the third day of hostage releases. What can you tell us is the latest on the effort to free further hostages?
1: Shalom, Michael, and hello, everyone. Uh, A pleasure to be here uh, among such distinguished guests after me, which is great. And I think that's super special that you're bringing uh, uh, Richie Torres on the show. Uh, That's a special treat the situation is indeed very emotional but we in the military we try to focus on the actual part of uh, the military business here so so far and i emphasize so far despite a um, an event yesterday where hamas delayed the transfer of the hostages except for that in general the um, situation is according to plan and 40 40 israelis and uh, uh, 18 foreign nationals have been transferred into israel many of the israelis have now been reunited some of the uh, reunions are complete families that are completely reunited and some are partial where family members the male family members are still inside gaza Uh, The IDF, our role in this is just to facilitate the transfer. We are not really the important part there. It's much more organized by the the government, Mossad, ISA, Shabak, and others who are doing uh, that work behind the scenes, and we're just facilitating. What we are focusing on is the day after this temporary pause ends. Uh, What we're doing now on the ground is holding our lines, our defensive lines inside Gaza, Taking, using the time the best we can in order to prepare ourselves for the future, the imminent uh, future in the coming days, resting a bit, learning from what we've learned so far in the fighting, what we've uh, understood of uh, Hamas' capabilities, their tactics, their locations, what they do, their weaknesses and strengths, and uh, focusing on how to do even better in the future. And bottom line, preparing for the next stage of operations, which will uh, bring us back to fighting, back to killing and taking out Hamas operatives and applying pressure on Hamas leadership.
0: And I want to remind our viewers that right now there are still 177 hostages still in Hamas captivity. They comprise eight girls, 10 boys, 34 women, 100 men, uh, nine female elderly persons and uh, 16 Uh, seniors who are men. Um, So still a long way to go in terms of releasing those hostages. We do hope that many more will be coming out in coming days or certainly in the future one way or another and certainly alive and healthy and well and coming back to their families. And of course, you mentioned the Hamas delay uh, and we saw in one case a 13-year-old Hila Rotem Shoshani who was uh, released, but without her mother. They claimed they didn't know where she was. According to Hilla, her mother was with her all the time until two days before her release. So yeah, tomorrow... Yeah, more lies.
1: More, more Hamas lies. More
0: Hamas lies, which uh, unfortunately don't get enough airtime, as I know uh, you agree with. Uh, and of course, today uh, we saw Abigail, little, are you done? uh little Avigail, who uh, uh, was released two days after her fourth birthday. A sweet little girl, unfortunately, she's going to get out and find out that she's now an orphan because her parents were murdered by Hamas in the October 7th massacre. So we've seen, unfortunately, in the media, an equivalence between the hostages and the Palestinian prisoners being released uh, to the Palestinian Authority. What do you say to those making that comparison?
1: I think it's a very shallow comparison, and it goes along the lines of, you know, people uh, with uh, with you know catchphrases and slogans of let's just cease the fighting let's bring the bring the end to hostilities and let's uh, end the suffering and many other platitudes that really there's nothing uh, behind them and it, maybe it sounds right but they are so detached from reality. Um, the uh, Palestinians, the convicted offenders that we have uh, released from prison, uh, are people who to, who made an active decision to engage in illegal activity, whether it's terrorist activity against civilians or military activity against uh, the military or police. But these are people who made an active uh, decision to act violently. Uh, Some of them are underage, some of them are women. But these are all people, nobody there is innocent and nobody there is in jail just because uh, we wanted to take them there. And of course, the easy, lazy way is to create kind of a, a balance or a, a comparison between a four-year-old uh, baby girl and an 84-year-old elderly lady uh, who have nothing to do with fighting, who, on the other hand, were very much for uh, uh, human rights and Palestinian rights and the other things, who then found themselves 51 days or 50 days in Hamas captivity, and compare that with Palestinian criminals, some of them terrorists, some of them just violent criminals against security forces, I think is another example of how many in the media really do their viewers and their consumers a disservice with lazy and biased reporting.
0: And so prior to this temporary pause, and we should stress it is a temporary pause, isn't it? What what did we see in the in the days beforehand how successful was the idf against hamas in gaza in those days before that pause came into play
1: well it's a very hard battlefield it's a very heavily defended battlefield with many dimensions the most important one or the most challenging one being the subterranean one hamas has prepared and done a lot and spent Tremendous resources in, in preparing the battlefield uh, for fighting. Despite that, our progress has been very good. According to plan, sadly, yes, with casualties, there are more than 60 Israeli-confirmed uh, uh, deaths killed in action of the IDF since we started the maneuver, and each one of them is a family that is now shattered and uh, and scarred forever, and that is tremendously sad. But that is a price that we understand that we have to pay in order to get rid of Hamas. And as time goes by, we see that today Hamas admitted at their own uh, initiative that five senior commanders, a brigade commander, uh, two battalion commanders and other very senior Hamas military commanders were killed by the IDF. This is, of course, something that they didn't want to admit, but uh, they probably knew that we knew about it and we were going to expose it. So uh, there are many uh, achievements that as the, day, as the time unfolds, we are able to, ex- to expose. And as time goes by, we will not only be able to say how many dozens senior commanders of Hamas that we've taken out, but also the amount of combatants. Because that's an important topic because so many in the media and in government in the U.S. and U.K. and South Africa and and Australia and many other countries, they rely on Palestinian figures. And those figures are out there. uh, They're false. They're inflating the number of civilians and they're deflating and hiding the number of combatants. But just as now we're showing that, and Hamas admitted that senior combatants have been killed, we're also monitoring the amount of combatants that have been killed. And I can tell you that we're talking about thousands. And it will be very embarrassing for media organizations and others who have been taking again Hamas propaganda as if it was truth and parroting that to the world, when we will cross-reference and expose the amount of Hamas combatants, then we will see that the picture of the alleged so many civilians that have been killed is far from the truth. And there are many, many combatants that have been killed and far fewer civilians than what is currently reported.
0: Very important point. And so what's next for the war effort following this pause in the military campaign that we know will resume at some point?
1: So we have uh, the chief of staff has been in Gaza several times. He has already approved plans for the, sec- the next stage of maneuver. Uh, and as soon as the government tells us go, then the IDF is ready, committed and eager to continue the mission. There is no uh, nobody in the IDF is talking about any pause or anything else. We are just waiting for a go in order to continue our mission, in order to strike Hamas and apply pressure on Hamas, wherever they are, all of Gaza, uh, and they're not confined to any geographical area. And we will continue to strike them, strike their commanders, their infrastructure, and we will continue to do that while distinguishing between combatant and non-combatant and fighting according to humanitarian law.
0: And meanwhile, of course, Reserve is still on the northern front. Um, What do we know about what's happening there?
1: Well, we see that it's uh, definitely coordinated, right? We see that uh, we made an agreement through Egypt, the U.S., and Qatar with uh, Hamas, but there was no agreement with uh, Hezbollah. But we see that they are very well coordinated, and it appears as if uh, they are under the same uh, message sheet and probably take orders from the same headquarters in Tehran, one would assume. And uh, so far, the situation along the northern border has been quieter these days than all of the days before. But we are, of course, vigilant along the border as well. We understand that the enemies will try to find weaknesses and try to attack them. We are actively preventing that from happening so far quite successfully, but we must, of course, remain very vigilant. And we understand that as soon as the fighting will continue in Gaza, it is likely uh, that the fighting will continue up north as well. And again, it's worth mentioning that uh, we are the uh, side that is defending ourselves. The aggressors are in Lebanon. The aggressors are in Gaza. We didn't want the war against Hamas, uh, which was forced upon us on the 7th of October. We haven't asked for a war with Hezbollah in Lebanon. If it will unfold, we will defend ourselves. And uh, those in Lebanon asking themselves what will happen, I think they can look at Gaza and understand that they can will gain absolutely nothing but they will lose a lot from attacking Israel.
0: Lieutenant Colonel Jonathan Comricas, thank you very much. I know that you are across the airwaves from Fox to CNN to MSNBC, dealing with tough and sometimes ridiculous questions. Thank you so much for being with us.
1: Thank you for having me. Always an honor. Thank you.
0: Our next guest is one of the most consistent allies of Israel and with the Jewish people in Congress. He's the congressman representing New York's 15th district, who at the age of 25 became New York City's youngest elected official and the first Afro-Latino openly LGBTQ member of Congress. And at Washington, D.C.'s recent March for Israel, he had this to say.
2: I am here as an American to defend one of our greatest American values, the U.S.-Israel relationship. The U.S.-Israel relationship is not just a Democratic or Republican value, it's not just a progressive or conservative value, it is an American value encoded in our national DNA.
0: He's been to Israel five times, and we are proud that he's joining us today. Representative Richie Torres, thank you for joining us.
2: It's an honor to be here.
0: Now, I know that you watched a screening of the footage from the October the 7th atrocities. Please tell us about your
2: reaction to that. The the, the video that I saw was just one of the most horrifying experiences of my life. Um, you know, To watch the raw footage of October 7th is to see pure sadism at work. You, you, The video captures the sadistic enjoyment that Hamas felt as it was gunning down innocent Israelis. And there was one moment that lodged in the back of my mind uh, when, when there was a father who picked up when he realized that there were Hamas terrorists approaching his home. He picked up his children, brought them to a shelter. Uh, the children originally thought that it was a prank. And Hamas terrorists threw a grenade into the shelter. Uh, causing the father to die from the explosion, causing one of the children to lose eyesight from the explosion. And when the children realized that it was not a prank, that this was a terrorist attack, you could see in the video one of the children just crying hysterically in agony, screaming, why am I still alive? Why am I still alive? Uh, And so a child experiencing the torment and torture and terror of Hamas uh, is a fate worse than death. And that was captured in the raw footage that I saw.
0: And of course, it's important that people know and see that terrible reason why Israel is fighting right now. I assume that is one of the reasons why you spoke at the
2: Washington D.C. March recently. Uh, w- w- without question, you know, for me, and I said it at the rally, uh, October 7th was a crime against the Jewish state and a crime against humanity. So barbaric that it cannot be ignored, it cannot go unpunished. Hamas must be brought to justice. And Israel has a right to defend itself in the face of the most barbaric act of anti-Semitism that we've seen since the Holocaust. And I have been outspoken against the double standard that's often applied to Israel. I pointed out at the rally that, that no one expected the United States to enter into a ceasefire with Nazi Germany and the Imperial Japan after Pearl Harbor and during World War II. You know, no one expected the United States to enter into a ceasefire with Al-Qaeda and the Taliban when 3,000 Americans were murdered on 9-11. And so why is the world demanding that Israel enter into a, into a ceasefire, mm-hmm. that Israel no longer defend itself? You know, the, the, Those who insist that Israel should stop defending itself uh, in the midst of barbaric anti-Semitism are holding the Jewish state to a double standard that no other country, including the United States, would ever impose on itself. And, and for me, a, a ceasefire is not a peace agreement. It is a death sentence for Israelis. And this is not theoretical. Hamas has publicly said that October 7th was not a one-time event, that there will be a second and a third and a fourth that Hamas is committed to murdering every Jew in Israel and to the Jewish state itself is annihilated. The word annihilation comes directly from the leadership of Hamas, and we ignore the genocidal intent of Hamas at our own peril.
0: Congressman, if I can ask you, when you were younger, what were some of the experiences that motivated you to learn more and ultimately to stand with Israel and the Jewish people?
2: Uh, it depends on how much younger, but you know, for most of my youth, I had no—you know—I grew up in a community that was almost exclusively. A Latino and African American, so I had no engagement with the Jewish community. I had no engagement with the issue of Israel. Uh, and when I assumed office in 2014 as a New York City council member, I was a blank slate on the issue of Israel. I had no knowledge of the subject matter. I had no passion for the subject matter. Uh, and then I was invited by the Jewish Community Relations Council of New York and UJA to go on a delegation to Israel. And the experience in Israel was both one of the most formative and transformative experiences of my life. And that was the beginning of my journey as a pro-Israel advocate. And and just as influential as the trip itself was the lead up, you know, when I announced that I was going to Israel in 2014, I became the target of overwhelming hatred and vitriol. Uh, there were BDS activists who were accusing me of aiding and abetting, quote, apartheid and ethnic cleansing and genocide. There, there were activists who held a rally against me on the steps of City Hall, and I, I remember coming across one activist who had a shirt that read "Queers for Palestine," and and so I approached the activist, and, and at that point I had done research on the subject, and I asked the activist, "You know, I'm curious, what is your opinion of Hamas?" And I thought she was going to tell me, "You know, I support Palestinian rights, but of course I condemn a terrorist organization like Hamas," and instead. She said to me that she supports Hamas because Hamas in her mind represents the liberation of the Palestinian people. Hamas is fighting, you know, represents resistance to the quote-unquote Israeli occupation. And at that moment I was in a state of shock. Like at that moment I had the beginning of an epiphany. The fact that an LGBTQ activist would defend a terrorist organization that systematically and savagely murders LGBTQ people, like that to me was as clear a sign as any of the utter stupidity and moral bankruptcy and absurdity that BDS has increasingly inflicted on progressive politics. And over time, I came to realize one of the most influential ideas on college campuses is the notion of intersectionality, which holds you cannot be both progressive and pro-Israel. And I've made it one of the goals of my political career to expose that as a vicious lie. You know, I, I'm Black, I'm Latino, I'm LGBTQ, I'm millennial, I'm progressive, and I'm pro Israel. And I tell people I'm pro Israel not despite my progressive values, but because of those progressive values, that Israel itself is a progressive enterprise.
0: And you mentioned the college campus. And so, what can be done to ensure that universities
2: throughout the United States can better combat anti Semitism? We need a much more robust response to campus anti-Semitism, both at the level of law and culture. So when it comes to law, the problem is not a lack of legislation. The problem is a lack of enforcement. Title VI of the Civil Rights Act prohibits discrimination in matters of race, religion, nationality. And so any university or college that creates a hostile environment for Jews on college campuses is acting in violation of Title VI of the Civil Rights Act and should be held accountable. There needs to be more rigorous civil rights enforcement with respect to cracking down uh, on campus anti-Semitism. We should leverage the power that we have over federal dollars to force um, much greater crackdown on campus anti-Semitism. But, but, you know, but law will only take you so far, there needs to be change at the level of culture. You know, universities and campuses. to create a culture of zero tolerance for anti-Semitism, and have to communicate to their students, you know, here are the lines that you should never cross when it comes to hate speech. You know, if you're uttering phrases like, from the river to the sea, or globalize the Intifada, or we don't want a two-state, we want 48, if you're uttering those phrases, you're not simply advocating for the creation of a Palestinian state, you're advocating for the destruction of Israel as a Jewish state and advocating for the destruction of a people is hate speech. It is an incitement of hate and violence. It is a line that should never be crossed.
0: And what do you say to those anti Israel activists who conflate American issues uh, with race, particularly with the Israeli Palestinian conflict?
2: You know, they, it, it, my impression is there, there, there are those who who have a worldview that divides the universe into two categories, like the oppressed versus the oppressor, black versus white, the powerful versus the powerless. And so in the intersectional mind, Israel is the oppressor who can do no right. And Hamas is the oppressed who can do no wrong. And that is the dangerously simplistic lens through which the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is seen in the United States and elsewhere in the world. And I would submit to you that that lens is more distorting than Claricon. Uh, And it's led to a distorted understanding of what is actually happening in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. One of the best arguments I've heard came from Maddie Friedman, who who, who warns against the Americanization of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict that we as Americans or we as Westerners tend to apply American and Western ideas where it clearly doesn't belong and where it contributes to more confusion rather than clarity in our understanding.
0: And let's talk uh, foreign policy for a moment. What if anything can Congress do to better hold accountable America's supposed allies such as Qatar or Turkey who have supported Hamas and even at times harbored its members?
2: Well, there needs to be accountability in the long run. Um, although the the objective is to ensure that Hamas is removed from power, so that there is no terrorist organization to finance, uh, that that should remain the objective of both Israel and the United States. Look, the the, the the there there are complications here in the short run. The United States and Israel are depending up, upon Qatar or Qatar to to mediate negotiations with Hamas regarding the release of the hostages. Uh, So that's our short-term dependency on on Qatar. But in the long run, we have to make it crystal clear that we, the United States, as the leader of the free world, are no longer going to tolerate countries financing terrorist organizations like Hamas. Um, And and that's a clear message that we're going to have to send to Qatar and Turkey uh, because we cannot afford a repeat of October 7th. And anyone who's financing Hamas has blood on their hands, is aiding and abetting one of the most barbaric acts of terror that we've seen in recent memory.
0: And we spoke about campus just a moment ago. And of course, Stan with us is very engaged on the campus, trying to create a diverse movement of support for Israel all across the board. And as one of the most outspokenly pro-Israel representatives on the progressive spectrum, can you expand a little bit on how your progressive values have influenced your pro-Israel support?
2: Uh, well, I, I would respectfully disagree with the framing of the question. I would argue that I'm one of the most progressive members across all spectrum, not just the progressive.
0: We'll give it to you. We'll give it to you.
2: But, but uh, I, I, you know, what are progressive values? Um, women's rights, LGBTQ rights, minority rights. You know, there's no country in the Middle East that is more protective of women's rights or LGBTQ rights or minority rights than Israel. Right. Israel is the closest approximation of a liberal democracy in the Middle East. It has an independent media, it has an independent judiciary. Uh, it has free and fair elections. You know, if you think about what is considered progressive in the United States, it's the Green New Deal, it's Medicare for all, it's, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, a whole host of uh, campaign financing of campaigns, public financing of campaigns. You know, Israel has more green innovation per capita than any country on earth. Israel has public financing of campaigns. Israel has has its own system of socialized medicine. Um, uh, Israel is far more protective of Arab rights than the Arab world has been protective of Jewish rights. In fact, almost all Jews have been ethnically cleansed from the Arab world. Um, But in, in Israel, there's Arab representation in the Knesset, Arab representation on the Supreme Court. There's disproportionate Arab representation. In the Israeli healthcare system, which is a central institution in Israeli life, you know, is Israel perfect? No. But the story of Israel, much like the story of America, is progress, not perfection. Uh, and there's far more progress in Israel than there is anywhere else in the Middle East. It's not even remotely close. You know, if, 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 you, if I were to ask you the question, which society in the Middle East is most conducive to the flourishing of progressive values? If if anyone who tells you any other country other than Israel is telling a lie, period. There's just no other country that comes remotely close to promoting progressive values to the extent that Israel has done in the Middle East.
0: And I wanted to ask you, you know, when war broke out, there was, of course, talk of the growth of the Abraham Accords, which has been a development in the Middle East over the last couple of years. And what is your hope for what happens the day after Hamas is removed from power?
2: Look, I am convinced that Iran prompted Hamas to launch the October 7th attack. That's my, I have no evidence, but that's my sense. I think Hamas saw, Iran saw a distracted and divided Israel. It saw distracted and divided America without a speaker of the house. And it saw that Israel was on the verge of making peace with Saudi Arabia. And October 7th was a ploy to derail Israeli Arab peace. And and the message that we have to send is that it might have derailed it, it might have delayed it, but it's not going to derail it. A long arc of history will bend toward Israeli Arab peace. Uh, And if Hamas is removed from power, and is replaced with a regime that is willing to make peace with Israel, uh, we're going to see the Abraham Accords have unstoppable momentum. But the removal of Hamas from power is a necessary, not a sufficient, but a necessary condition for peace.
0: Absolutely. Uh, finally, what advice do you have to our Stand With Us community of people who want to reach out and educate others? About uh, you know fighting anti-Semitism and supporting
2: Israel, I would tell the the Stand With Us community to remain active. Um, you know, if, if the if the Jewish community does not speak out forcefully against anti-Semitism, then no one else will. Like people, allies like me have to draw leadership from the Jewish community. You know, if if if. Now, I'm reminded of a quote from FDR, who said, "The only thing we have to fear is fear itself." And if if we silence ourselves out of fear, then we become part of the problem rather than part of the solution. If we silence ourselves out of fear, we are engaging in the kind of self censorship that perpetuates anti semitism and perpetuates extremism. And so, I would encourage people to break the silence, to break the fear factor stand up and speak out and take pride in your identity as a Jew and your identity as a pro-Israel advocate. Uh, When I was in Israel someone shared with me what was probably an apocryphal story about Napoleon. Uh, He said to me that Napoleon was passing by a synagogue during the Jewish day of mourning and he heard the congregants there grieving and Napoleon asked why are the congregants mourning? And it was explained to him that it was the Jewish day of mourning and that Jews were mourning for a return to their homeland and have been praying and mourning for thousands of years, thousands of years. And Napoleon was said to be so struck by the longevity of the Jewish tradition that he essentially said, you know, any people who are so passionately committed and devoted as to pray for thousands of years are destined to reclaimed their home. And what I love about that story is that it captures what I take to be the secret to the success of the Jewish community and the of community, passionate devotion, passionate commitment. Uh, and, and so I would simply tell all of the followers of Stand With Us, is remain passionately committed to sustaining Israel for the next 75 years and beyond. I'm Israel I
0: amen to that uh congressman richie torres thank you so much i'm reminded of the words of dr king that we will remember the silence of our friends but when, in addition to that we will certainly remember the loud voice of our passionate friends who stand with us through thick and thin and particularly in our darkest hour and that's uh certainly described to you thank you so much for who you are and all that you do and thank you so much for being with us thank you thank you what an amazing ally now, today in the UK, a huge march against anti-Semitism took place with over 105,000 uh, taking to the streets and Stand with us. UK was proud to partner. And here in Jerusalem on Thursday, you've got a sneak preview of it before. We helped give a special Thanksgiving dinner for lone IDF soldiers and National Service personnel, people who've left their families around the world to come and fight for the Jewish state. Deputy Mayor of Jerusalem, Flach Hassan Nachum and Hollywood actor, James Maslow, put in an appearance to give a boost to the troops. Take a look. It's Thanksgiving and at the Stand With Us Center, we're thrilled to be hosting the Michael Nevin Lone Soldiers Base to say thank you to our amazing lone soldiers who come from all over the world to serve in the IDF, to protect and defend Israeli freedom and democracy right now. Let's take a look. that that you're all doing is what has lifted us from that moment it's lifted us from the depths and it continues to do so so for us to be able to stay here on Thanksgiving, that we give thanks to the young men and women who are, and also there's not so young men and women right now, who are serving this country and, and guarding our very freedom, our ability to be free, to be a democracy, and to be a vibrant Jewish state is an incredible thing. So you
1: chose to be here and be soldiers of Am Israel and Medinat Israel. We are in awe of you, so thank you, thank you, thank you.
0: But I posted a couple of things right after October 7th. And that may seem silly, like that's not doing much, and maybe it's not, but there's a lot of people who aren't even doing that. They're too afraid to. They're too afraid of anti-Semitism. Which, weirdly enough, if you're you're from here, you live here, you may not be experiencing. It may be the one thing that you're not experiencing, because you're not a minority here. You're surrounded by support, by family, by Jews people who love you for who you are, who are peaceful, who believe in community and family, and all the same things that you believe in. And unfortunately, that's just not the case in the rest of the world. And what October 7th showed me is that anti-Semitism is so much deeper and more rampant than I ever thought would be the case in my life. Why did you come to
1: Israel to serve, tell us? So I grew up in Colombia in a small community. Where I was educated, like very Zionist and Jewish environment, so I understood the importance to came to Israel because it's our country, where Jewish people can can be ourselves and not be afraid. So to take part of that because it's bigger than me, so I wanted to to take part of that and protect my people in our land. Tell us what you're doing, and then my God, the and Lisa, what are you doing right I now? I work
0: in the emergency room at the Bass St. Kevin is a mushroom. Incredible. Why are you in Israel? What were you here to serve?
1: Well my whole life I always wanted to be a soldier. And I came here when I was fifteen the first time and I fell in love with the country and I noticed that if not me, then I don't know who else is gonna defend our people. And it meant a lot to me to come here and serve, so that's why. And how did you end up in a,
0: a Jerusalem ER? Yeah? I spent a year in uh Russia, and I realized there was no other place to be. is my home, so I made Ariya and um, you
1: my Thank you to Israel from Connecticut. So I'm actually a Gare, so I'm a, I'm a convert. So I went to UC for three years
0: beforehand. I made Aliyah, got stuck there during COVID. Finally, finally, after one and a half years, I was able to make Aliyah and join the army. Amazing. Thank you for your service. For- Matt, why are you here during a war? All the way from Brooklyn?
1: Because I came on a solidarity trip to support my country. and. I didn't realize how special and impactful it was going to be and I'm really emotional and thankful for everything that the Highland have been doing and for the state and I want to live here and it'd be my dream to live here and I just want to say thank you for everything.
0: Thank you for being here. Thank you, guys. What an honor to be able to give thanks to our troops and big thanks to our friends at the Michael Levin base. For making this happen. And of course, we're anxiously waiting for the return of every one of the innocent people kidnapped in Gaza. We are desperate to see more emotional reunion scenes like these ones. <laughs>
2: חשבתם על אבא? אביבי, חשבת על אבא? חשבת עלי דברים טובים?
1: כן?
2: מה היא, מה אמרה עליי? חלמת שהלכתם הביתה? הנה, עכשיו החלום מתגשם, אנחנו בבית זהו, אנחנו עוד מעט לבית שלנו
0: עוד מעט אנחנו חוזרים לבית שלנו אנחנו רק באנו לפה שהרפיא יבדוק אותנו וזהו, אנחנו הולכים הביתה אבל שמו לכם פה מלא (שמע) שמו לכם פה מלא צעצועים,
1: (דרכת) מנורות, (דרכת)
0: כל מיני דברים, את לא מבינה כמה דברים שמו לכם פה, כל האנשים האלה הביאו לכם מתנות, הכל פה,
1: את שמחה?
0: incredible emotional scenes which we hope to have many more of. And it will come as no surprise to you that these videos are among the most shared videos on Stand With Us social media right now being watched millions and millions of times. In fact, Stand With Us social media interactions have topped 1 billion since October the 7th, making us a vital source of accurate information. And our team is working around the clock to fight the information war. And this week, you have a special opportunity to make these efforts Even stronger. Giving Tuesday is coming up. Giving Tuesday, on Giving Tuesday, every donation that you make will very kindly be doubled by a generous donor. And you don't have to wait till Tuesday. You can start giving now. Go to standwithus.com slash givingtuesday to double your donation. That's standwithus.com slash givingtuesday. We're in this together. So thank you for your generous support. We're sending love to the Israeli troops and to our brothers and sisters and allies worldwide and our prayers for every single hostage to be back home with their family
2: soon. Thanks for watching. Um, Yisrael Chai.